We've been looking at the book of Judges, as you know. It's not a pleasant excursion. It's a reality check. If we were to sum up the theme of the book of Judges, it would be this, the sinfulness of man and the deliverance of God. That seems to be the repeated pattern in the book. Uh, Sadly, we're seeing Israel revealing her true colors through a repeated pattern of sin, and yet surprisingly, in response to it, we see the Lord's merciful response and his deliverance of Israel. Because God loves her and us, he allowed Israel the full experience of the natural consequences of her sin, and they were quite harsh. He didn't do it to pain her for no reason. He did it to move Israel to repentance. That's what it takes sometimes. Israel had become quite comfortable in her pattern of sin, and so God lovingly lets her see what the consequences thereof are so that she would be moved to repentance. And then when she calls out to him with a repentant heart, again, surprisingly, there he is always ready to restore. And so this book, uh, Judges, really is the account of man's rebellion and God's restoration. Maybe that will help you to get a handle on the book. Think about rebellion and restoration. And so what we've seen and will continue to see, sadly, in the book is a kind of cycle of sin repeated about a dozen times through Judges, and it kind of looks like this. There's Israel's sin, sadly, and then she suffers for it. By the way, that's one of the reasons why God hates sin, not the sinner, not the one who sins, but sin. He hates it because it doesn't work. So Israel sinned and suffers for it. And then she cries out to God. That's what the word supplication means. It's a serious and earnest petition for help from God. And then the fourth S in the sin cycle is salvation. He sends help. And so there is the sin cycle, you see, repeated throughout the book. Sin and suffering, supplication and salvation. About a dozen times repeated. And what you also see is that God's means of salvation is usually a person Namely, a category of people called judges, hence the name of the book. This is before the monarchy of Israel when they had a king. They didn't have a king yet. Joshua, the great leader, had passed on. And so the form of government, if you will, was was judges. And they were judges in the sense in which we think of judges. They adjudicated civil disputes, but they were more than that. They also were spiritual leaders, deliverers. They were many saviors, if you will. We saw the first three of these. The first was Othniel, and then there was Ehud, and then Shamgar. And tonight we'll take a gander at the fourth judge, whose story is told in the book of Judges. And this is interesting because the fourth judge is not a he. He is a she, and she is Deborah, and she is the only a female judge whom God raised up to deliver Israel. We can have a big lengthy discussion about the role of women in ministry and in the church, but not tonight. Uh, We're just going to let the text speak for itself. And for whatever reason, uh, God raised up this magnificent woman, and we will read a little bit about her. So let's begin now in Judges chapter 4, verse 1. Then the sons of Israel again did evil 
And you see that haunting word again, again. Then the sons of Israel again did evil. And that's what happened. Again and again, they did evil. Why? There's something wrong with them. There's something wrong with us, with human nature. There's something in us that propels us to sin again and again. It's not something that's taught. It's almost as if we're born with this sinful nature. It's like we're conceived in sin. Well, in fact, that's what the Bible says about human nature. I know it flies in the face of the attitude today where we would like to persuade each other that we're inherently good, but that seems not to be borne out by the facts. In fact, we give evidence of our inherent sin nature every single day, and so Israel is like a mirror uh, pointing out human nature in general. And so they sinned repeatedly as we do, because they, we, are sinners. And the text, in speaking about this inclination of sin, again says, evil was done, notice, in the sight of the Lord, after Ehud died. This is such a sad, repetitive reality we see in Judges. After God raised up a mini-savior, in this case, Eglon, uh, I mean Ehud, who uh, freed Israel from bondage under a Moabite king, named Eglon. Remember, he was the one described as being a very large man. We, we read the rather graphic story leading to his demise. After Ehud freed the people from subjugation by Eglon the Moabite, Israel enjoyed the longest period of peace in the reign of the judges, 80 years of rest for as long as their mini-savior was alive. And then as soon as he died, they went back to their wicked ways and Makes you want to cry out for a deliverer, for a savior, you know, who, I don't know, maybe would not die. And we have one like that. And so when we look to this succession of uh, flawed saviors whose shelf life was rather limited, it throws you uh, uh, to your knees in praise to Almighty God, the Lord Jesus, who rose up from death, never to be subject to it again, alive and well, seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us right now, in control of the universe of which he is the agent of. Thank God for the Son who will not die. We do have a Savior who can grant us a measure of rest and, and peace uh, without interruption because... Well, death no longer is something that could victimize him. And so we're told that they again did evil, I hate this phrase, in the sight of the Lord. And we're told specifically what it is they did in Judges chapter 5, which I'm just going to allude to tonight. I'll, I'll tell you why later. We're really going to concentrate on chapter 4. But in chapter 5, verse 8, we're told specifically what they did. It simply says this, new gods were chosen. Ah, that's a haunting thing. God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, creator of the universe, the one true God, the God of the Bible, said, Israel, I, I will enter into covenant with you. I'll call you my own. I'll bless you. I'll be your supply. I'll, I'll free you from bondage. I'll carry you through wilderness wanderings. I'll bring you to a place of promise and in spite of all that, when Israel gets into the land, Israel takes on new gods, turns her back on, on her own God who was so pleased to 
in being a personal relationship with her. It's a terrible, terrible sin. And so Israel succumbed to the temptation of worshiping the Canaanite gods. She's supposed to be different and distinct. And now she's exchanging loyalty and devotion to the true God, to the false gods of of the land. And so the sin cycle is beginning again, as you'll see here in this text. As soon as Ehud, the judge, dies, the people fall away from serving the Lord. And once again, the sins which the people committed, the author refers to as being evil in the sight of the Lord. Why does he emphasize that? Because really, if you ask the average sinning Israelite in that day about his or her sin, he or she would say, what sin? They would deny the wrongness of the wrong things they're doing because they had developed a kind of a relativistic standard. It was the death of absolutes. There are no moral absolutes in ancient Israel. And boy, is that reflective of the day in which we live. And in fact, the theme of Judges, the sad theme, we spoke about it last week, is everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I emphasize the point. It doesn't say everyone did what was wrong. It's not that people are intent on doing what's wrong. What's wrong is people who are intent on doing what's right think right is determined by what you think is right, not what God thinks is right. And so every day it's played out, even here in the United States, all kinds of unusual partnerships and marital arrangements and decisions about terminating pregnancy and all manner of things, and yet... If you confronted people head on about that, many would say, who are you to tell me this is wrong and unacceptable? It might be to you, but it fits me. You see, everyone is doing what's right in his own eyes. That was true of ancient Israel, and it's true of our day as well. In God's sight, certain things, regardless of the time, the culture, the day, are always right or always wrong. But in the eyes of society, things are changing. You know, so when you talk to people, I don't even like the term traditional marriage. Because when you speak to people about traditional marriage, it sort of indicates, oh, you're old-fashioned. <laughs> no, no, you're just someone who believes that God, who came up with the idea of marriage, knows what he's talking about. And it doesn't change from day to day, in spite of votes and pressures and demands for equal rights and access to marriage. <laughs> God who created the institution of marriage has an idea of how it's supposed to work. And so in that day as in our day, people were not seeking to do what's wrong. It was worse. They were seeking to do what was right, but in their own eyes. And so here's what happened. Verse 2, the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor or Chatzor. Here's a little glimpse of the ruins of Chatzor today. I've been there. Some of you have been there. I keep emphasizing that what we read in Scripture is not mythological. It's true. And we have uh, evidence of it. This particular city, I know it looks like ruins only now, but it was a major Canaanite city in one day. Very large. It's north of the Sea of Galilee. Oh, about 12 miles. It's in the tribal area of a group called Naphtali. And because of Israel's sin, this is terrible, uh, God himself sold them into bondage to a Canaanite leader who, whose base of operation was in Hatzor, and his name was Jabin. By the way, there's a couple Jabins in the Bible, and critics of the Bible 
um, uh, make complaints about this, but they're missing it. Jabin was probably not a proper name. It's probably a title. Anyway, this particular Jabin is said to be the king of Hatsor. He was the commander of, and he had a commander of his army, a man named Sisera. And he lived in a place called Harosheth Hagoyim, which means the forest of the Gentiles. Well, uh, the point is the people of Israel for their sin paid a terrible price. Again, that's why God grieves over it when we sin. He knows it doesn't work and it makes matters worse for us. And it certainly was the case with Israel. And so here's what they eventually did under the weight of the consequence of their sin. Verse 3, the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Don't you find it amazing that he still heard? Yeah, I'm telling you, once you're in a covenant with God, it's kind of irreversible. Once you're adopted into his family as a son or daughter, you cannot shake him because his grace is greater than all our sin. And though you may be a rebellious son or daughter, nonetheless, you remain a son or daughter. And so it's quite uh, amazing, surprising that Israel felt the right still to cry out to him and he lent ear to her cry. Why did they cry out? For he, Jabin, had 900 iron chariots. I don't think we can emphasize the significance of that. If he had 900 chariots, it means he had an army that was far greater even than the 900 charioteers. And a chariot in that day was state-of-the-art weaponry. Israel had no such thing. And so they were nervous about this. How could they be confronted? What could they do uh, with regard to Jabin and an army of chariots this size, and he oppressed the sons of Israel, it says, severely for 20 years. Ah, why 20 years? Well, I guess it took Israel 20 years to do something about it, to repent and to cry out, to cry out to God. You know, one time, I think I told you this, I was a missionary in Germany, and I was replacing a fellow, another American, and he was... Um, briefing me on circumstances, and we became close friends. Quite a godly uh, man. And in the course of just getting to know each other, he made the statement, he said, in probably the last 10 years, I don't think I've been out of fellowship with God for maybe more than 45 minutes. He wasn't bragging. This was in the context of a conversation. And I didn't understand what he meant. And he said, don't misunderstand. It's not that I haven't sinned from time to time. But as soon as the Holy Spirit convicts me of it, I simply confess it, thank God for forgiving me, and march right back into close communion with him. That's, that's exactly what he told me. And so Israel didn't have to wait 20 years to say, oh God, we have sinned against you and brought upon us these horrific consequences at the hand of the Canaanite leader, Jabin. Oh God, forgive us, we repent. They could have done that in 20 minutes, not 20 years, but well, they didn't do it. At the time, according to Judges chapter 5, verse 8, they had no weaponry. They had no, they had no metallurgy. They couldn't fashion metal weapons of their own so that they were really, really in a, in a disadvantaged position. They were a conquered and defeated people. Uh, they had no hope. And eventually they came to the end of themselves. A loving God will let us get there. And therefore, after 20 years, they cried out to him and Surprisingly, as I mentioned, he heard them. Her situation, Israel's situation, looked absolutely hopeless. How could she, without weaponry, take on a large army with 900 iron chariots, state-of-the-art weaponry of the day? 
Well, her situation looked hopeless until she cried out to the Lord. And here's what happened, verse 4. Now Deborah, or Deborah, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. So now we know something about Deborah. We know she was the wife of a man named Lapidoth. That's it. Uh, Secondly, we know she was a prophetess. What is a prophetess? Let's make it simple. A prophetess is a prophet who is a woman. (laughs) That's what a prophetess is. And what's a prophet? Well, a prophet is someone who has received direct revelation from God and shares it with others. That's exactly the role Deborah was performing. She is not the first prophetess nor the only mentioned in the Bible. In fact, the first listed in the Bible was Miriam. Moses' sister, and then there were others, Huldah and Anna. Perhaps you remember the account of things in Acts chapter 21. Philip had four daughters who are described as prophetess says. Well, verse 5 about Deborah, she used to sit under the palm tree. Why? Under a tree. Well, um, the religious headquarters were, was at Bethel, and the formal uh, religious establishment was there, but I take it at this time, there was a dearth of godly men, and so God raised up Deborah to do her thing, but I don't think she was recognized by the formal established religious leadership in Bethel, and so she had to do her thing by a palm tree between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and what happened is the sons of Israel would come to her there for judgment. So we find out something else about Deborah. She wasn't only a prophetess, she was a judge of Israel. People would come to her and she would settle disputes among them. So she was not only a prophetess, she was a judge, which means she was busy as a bee. And in fact, that's what the name Deborah means. It means bee. Isn't that interesting? And so verse 6, she sent and summoned a fellow named Barak. He was a military man. He was the son of Abinoam from Kadesh Naphtali. She said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded. See, she got insight from God directly. She was a prophetess. She's pointing it, uh, uh, passing it on to Barak. She said, God said, Go and march to Mount Tabor, or Mount Tabor, and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulon. So God spoke to Deborah, who then spoke to Barak, and she said, God said, go to Mount Tabor for battle. Here's a little glimpse of Mount Tabor. It's a very easily recognizable uh, mountain in Israel. We go by it all the time when we're there. It looks like an ice cream cone. It's it's shaped uh, in a very smooth way. It's about 1,800 feet in elevation. It's in the Jezreel Valley, by the way. That's the location of the last battle, Armageddon, that we read in the Bible, in that particular area. Uh, Now Tabor is just about six miles from a place you've heard of. It's called Nazareth. Anyway, Deborah says, God said, Barak, go there, take your troops up to Mount Tabor. So verse 7, I will draw out uh, to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, So Sisera was a general in the Canaanite army with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon. And I'll I'll give him into your hand. So God promised 
through Deborah, great victory. If only Barak and the others would trust him and go to war against Caesarea and the Canaanites. So verse 8, Barak said to her, if you, Deborah, will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So what he said, is that good or bad? Some people say good because he refused to go out to battle without uh, Deborah, a very key spokesperson of God. He, he wouldn't go without the prophetess. That's a, that's a good thing, some would say. Others would say it's a bad thing because he put too much dependence on Deborah and forgot about the fact that he, God would manifest his presence in the battle. He didn't have to go with Deborah. I don't know. You can debate about it, whether it's good or bad. I think it was kind of bad because of what it says in verse 9. Here's Deborah's response to his demand. I'll go, but not without you. She said, I, I surely will go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you're about to take, for the Lord will sell Caesarea into the hands of a woman. So, she is essentially saying, Barak, if you refuse to depend upon the Lord, you will not get the honor of the Lord's victory here. In fact, the woman will get the honor. And I think probably at the time, he, we, would think Deborah is referring to herself. But as you'll see in a few minutes, no, it's another woman. You'll see. Well, anyway, then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali together to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up with him. They went up to Mount Tabor. Deborah also was with him. Now, uh, there's a fellow here, Haber. He was a Kenite. The Kenites were descendants of Moses' father-in-law. They were not Jews, but they lived in the land. But this particular Kenite, Haber, it says, separated himself from the Kenites. He was kind of a free spirit, and he didn't want to hang out with his own people. He's in the land, and he kind of wants to Go with the flow. He wants to make friends with the Israelites. He wants to make friends with the Canaanites, as you'll see. So he lives separate from the rest of the Canaanites, from the sons of Hobab, father-in-law of Moses. He pitches his tent as far away as the Oak of Za'ananim, which is near Kedesh. All right. So that's what it says. So verse 12, here's what happened. Then they told Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. You know what this means? Abir ratted. He was a snitch. Eber told Sisera about the location of Barak and the troops and their battle plan. He tells them they're stationing themselves on Mount Tabor. And so Sisera called together all his chariots, 900 iron chariots, and all the people who were with him from Harosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. Now, I'll tell you what he's thinking right now. <coughs> he's thinking this is perfect for us. You have to understand uh, this was the perfect place for a chariot battle, because if uh, Barak and his troops then descended from the heights of Mount Tabor, they would be at the base of it on the flat plain of the Jezreel Valley, and that's exactly the kind of territory that gives chariots an advantage, you see, flat territory. And so they could decimate uh, Barak's army. In fact, historical records tell us they even attached certain things to the wheels of those chariots, and they would just charge into a crowd and slice people up. So Caesarea is thinking now, boy, this is really good fortune to me. So verse 14, Deborah said to Barak, arise. This is the day in which the Lord has given Caesarea into your hands. Behold, the Lord has 
gone out before you. And so Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. Once again, just to show you the topography, this is where he went down to. It was the, this is the scene. It was the Jezreel Valley. Barak and his men are descending from Mount Tabor to this flatland. You'll see a little depiction of the Jezreel Valley, I think, on the screens in front of you. It's beautiful, isn't it? That's the Jezreel Valley. Boy, that has been the site of so many battles. Once again, that very peaceful pastoral setting is the very scene. That's the staging area for the last battle, Armageddon, right there. But anyway, this is a perfect place for chariots. They could just charge through even 10,000 soldiers and pick them off quite easily. So verse 15, here's what happened. Surprisingly, the Lord routed Sisera. Do you ever pray for the divine surprise? Let me encourage you to do it. You know, based on human logic and reason, um, Sisera and the charioteers had an advantage, and they should have decimated easily Barak and the soldiers. But there's always the divine surprise. When you're up against something, I'm not preaching to you, I try to do the same thing. You can't see your way out. and You should pray, oh, God, would you grant us the divine surprise, something we didn't see coming, something we didn't anticipate, something we can't attribute to our wit or wisdom. Could you just, can you just uh, confound our thinking, our limitations, and would you bless us with a divine surprise? Well, here's the divine surprise, verse 15. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera uh, alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. Now, how did this happen? We get a historical description of this divine surprise, but how did it happen? Well, uh, if you were to skip over to chapter 5, verse 21, I'll read it to you. We get an idea of how it happened. It says, the torrent of Kishon, that's the river, swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon, oh, my soul, march on was strength. And so I don't know what the weather was like. I bet Sisera was thinking it's a good day to wipe out the Israelites. And all of a sudden, I suppose the God of weather commanded a thunderstorm so that the banks of the Kishon River overflowed. And as um, much as it is an advantage to have iron chariots, it becomes a disadvantage if the ground becomes muddy and softened. The wheels of the chariots get caught in it, and then they are easy prey for an infantry the size of which Barak had. And that's see, that's the divine, that's the divine surprise, folks. When you or I are at the end of our resources and can't see our way out, just say, "Oh God, how about a divine surprise?" And but make sure you give God the glory here. And so this is exactly what happened. Very interesting. Baal, the Canaanite god, was the Canaanite god of weather and storms. And here uh, we're seeing that the God of Israel is far supreme to the gods that the Israelites took on. The God of Israel was really the sovereign God, not Baal. And, and so it says, Sisera alighted from his chariot and he fled away on foot. But Barak, verse 16, pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harosheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not even one was left. 
And so Barak and his army pursued the Canaanite troops. If if you keep this in mind, they were going northwest from this scene. And Barak and his boys pursued them going northwest. Now here's what happened, verse 17. Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Eber, that guy we read about, the snitch, Eber the Canaanite, uh, Sisera takes refuge in the tent of this lady. Why? Well, there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hatzor, and the house of Eber, the Canaanite. You see, that's what he was doing. He was making friends with the Israelites. He was making friends with the Canaanites, that kind of deal. He was kind of playing one end against the other. And so Sisera knew about it, and he thinks he'll be safe by taking refuge in Jael's tent. And uh, you have to trust me on the direction. Sisera's men fled northwest. And you know what he did? He was fleeing northeast. That's not a good commanding general. That's what he's doing. And he went to the tent of Jael, Eber's wife. This is an actual picture of, uh, of it that we were able to find. It, it is a little cartoon-like, but you get the idea. I wanted to highlight this. Jael, this was the custom, had her own tent. That's how they did it. And her husband had, had his tent. Very interesting that Sisera did not go to her husband's tent. He went to her tent. And you can read into it whatever you want. But that's what he did. So verse 18, Jael, she came out of the tent. She went out to meet Sisera. And she said to him, turn aside, my master. Turn aside to me. Um, don't be afraid. Now, all along, you'll see she's up to something. And he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. Now, uh, you need to know um, what's happening here is that all customs of Middle Eastern hospitality are being violated. Even today, if you visit uh, the Bedouin people in Israel and other Middle Eastern countries, the Bedouin people are nomadic peoples living in tents, much like was done even here in ancient times. And Bedouin custom is you never, ever come into a tent um, uh, if a man's wife is there alone. In fact, before you approach the tent, you start making noise um, of an acceptable kind so as to, as to warn the, the man of the house that you're coming so he could come out and extend hospitality to you. So this whole setup is really a violation of Near Eastern hospitality. And so he goes into her tent, and then he says to her, uh, verse 19, uh, give me a little water to drink. He just wants some water because he's thirsty. What does she do? She opens a bottle of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. Why do you think she gave him milk instead of water? Anyone want to yell out a guess? Yeah, sleep will, uh, uh, I mean, milk, Don, you're right, wouldn't, you know, warm, like mama used to give you some warm milk, it would induce sleep. Uh, Jael knows what's up, and she says, my husband is a snitch, but I want to be on the right side, and the God of Israel is the triumphant God, and so she covers him with a rug, you know, nice and cozy, and gives him some some, some warm milk to induce sleep. So verse 20, he said to her, stand in the doorway of the tent and it shall be if anyone comes and inquires of you and says, is there anyone here? You shall say no. That's what he tells her to do. But Jael, Eber's wife, took a tent peg. I actually had some depictions of this, but I thought, ugh. That, 
stretching it a little bit. Just use your imagination. So she took a tent pick. She seized a hammer in her hand. She went secretly to him, and she drove the peg into his temple, and it went through into the ground because he was sound asleep and exhausted, and so he died. Women in that women today, Bedouin women, are tasked with the responsibility of taking down and setting up the tents. Did you know that? They still do that in the Middle East. And so that would have been Jael's responsibility, taking down and putting up the tent. I bring that out just to tell you, this would not be the first time she picked up a hammer and some tent pegs. This was a skillful lady in handling those utensils. And so... Though her husband, Eber, snitched and told Cesera about the whereabouts of Barak and the Israelites, she realized, no, you got to serve somebody. I'd rather serve this God than Baal and those gods. And so that's what she does. And we see, just as was prophesied by Deborah, the prophetess, it came true. It was not Barak, but a woman. In this case, Jael, who got the credit for putting the mighty general Caesarea to death, not Barak. So verse 22, uh, behold, as Barak pursued Caesarea, Jael came out to meet him. She said to him, come, I'll show you the man whom you're seeking. And he entered with her, and behold, Caesarea was lying dead with the tent peg in his temple. And, and, and so God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the sons of Israel, the hand of the sons of Israel pressed heavy and heavier upon Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. Once again, folks, we see Israel's rebellion and we see God's merciful restoration. You and I are in covenant relationship with Almighty God through Jesus, the Son, and you and I have an inclination to sin from time to time as well. Like my very pious friend who I met in Germany, please don't stay out of fellowship with this Holy Father longer than you need to confess sin and march right back into Holy Communion with him, for he stands ready to restore. It's just the way he is where sin abounds, grace superabounds. That's what I'm getting from this record of God's transactions with Israel. And this is something that is so marvelous, uh, so song-worthy, that what happened on this very day in history is that uh, Deborah and Barak wrote and sang a song. And that's what you get in chapter 5. And don't worry, um, our time is just about at an end. I won't read all through it to you as much as to tell you this. Chapter 4 is the historical record of this divine surprise. Chapter 5 is the lyrical record of it. Uh, chapter 4 is historical narrative and chapter 5 is uh, the response of the recipients of God's grace to it. They wrote a song and they worshipped. You know folks our singing here is just as important as our sermonizing it seems to me. Our singing is the expression of our worship to Almighty God. And so you see the song of Deborah all through chapter 5. Here's how it begins, just a few verses. Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang on that day, saying that the leaders led in Israel, that the people volunteered, bless the Lord. And in verse 3, Deborah says, Hear, O you kings, give ear, 
Oh, you princes, I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. You and I should make that commitment no matter what. We'll not rob God of his due. We'll sing praises to him. Do you mind me telling you, I'm finding this day personally to be very burdensome to me. It's just a rough day for many reasons. Maybe you're finding the same thing. I think our church is faced with new, fresh challenges. What an opportunity to ask God for the divine surprise as a congregation of believers. And then in the lives of so many of our people, as you hear, there's so much illness and hardship and difficulty and all the rest. I don't know. Maybe it's just me seeing it. I I really think the evil one is uh, very motivated to pull out all the stops, I think, knowing his time is short. This is a day for us to um, take the victory more than ever. How? How do we do it? I think by singing praises to Almighty God. Don't rob him of it. Sometimes I do. Do you mind if I admit to you, sometimes in church, I just don't feel like singing. I don't feel up to it. I'm discouraged. I'm down. That's very selfish of me. Because what's changed about Almighty God? Only the circumstances surrounding me have changed, but he remains exactly the same as he was with Israel, so he is with us, right? He's immutable. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. At what point is God not worthy of our singing? And if you're not one who who can carry a tune, I'm one of those. At least sing in your heart. At least don't let the song, uh, be, the new song that God has put in us be extinguished by the events of the day because this same God of Judges 4 and 5 is our God today. They, they, Deborah said, I find it, this whole event to be motivating, to write a song and sing it, no matter what, for God is worthy of it. And you could read through this beautiful song. Don't you think it's marvelous? That after thousands of years, we have, by God's grace, preserved for us the lyrics of this very ancient song. We don't have the tune of Judges 5, but uh, they sang it, and those were the words of it, the lyrics. And can I just close with the last verse of this song? That's Judges 5, verse 31. Thus let all your enemies perish, O Lord, but... Let those who love him be like the sun when it comes out in full strength. This told me you have options. (laughs) One is to be at odds with God or the other is to be his ally. Those are the only options in life. And we are told here in a beautiful poetic way the fate of those who make one or the other of those choices is entirely different. And those who are at odds with God will not prevail. They will perish. But those who are in right relationship with the true God, the God of the Bible, uh, they will flourish. And that's how the song concludes. And so in this complicated day, maybe it's just me, my head spins sometimes by the, the events of the day and how they happen at such a rapid fire. And it's hard to assimilate all that's going on. Now, I think it's a very subtle way the evil one to distract us from something very simple, and it's this. Whose side are you on? 
Whose praises are you singing? Have you and I taken on new gods when the true God stands ready to sustain us and give us the victory? And here in advance, Deborah's beautiful lyrics tells us the fate of both people groups is is very, very different. Could I just offer a word of encouragement to you as I'm seeking to find encouragement myself? Don't turn your back on Jesus, the true God. Um, don't let discouragement extinguish the fire. Uh, pray to him, oh God, restore to me, maybe we have to pray this, the joy of my salvation. Oh God, would you renew my, my first love? Oh, God, let me not take on the gods, new gods. Let me not exchange you for the false gods of the land, for you and you alone are the only true God. And as you were with Israel, that's the only reason why God has a record with Israel here. It's to show us what human nature is like, and it's to show us what his gracious divine nature is like. We're going to close here. Could I ask you to take a moment? If you're just not right with this God, uh, could, could you do business right where you sit and say, oh God, I want to be on the right side. I want to be on the side of the, the one who has victory and has given us the victory, oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. No matter what happens anywhere, oh God, I want to be fresh, and keep my eyes on you. I want to be devoted to you as you were with ancient Israel, so too. You are with me today. Can I invite you to just take a moment of quiet reflection? And just check out your heart. Are you okay with God? Are you rightly related? You can bow your head, close your eyes, just so as not to be distracted. Can you just do a little quick evaluation with God's help? Could you say, oh God, how are we? How are we getting along? Are we close? Oh God, is there anything between us? Maybe you need to ask God to, Identify what that is. Maybe you need to say, even Jael got it right, incited with the right God. She did not perish, she flourished. Oh God, I'd like to go that way too. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Take a minute, would you please have that conversation with God? Oh, God in heaven, thank you for making yourself so available to us no matter what. Thank you, Sar Shalom, Prince of Peace, for standing by to give us peace, even in the midst of storms. Thank you, God, of the great surprise for being willing to show us your hand today marvelously, just as you did in the text we just read tonight. Oh, God, would you put it within us to be renewed in our commitment to you, fresh devotion to you. Remembering our first love, trying to fight off distractions, surely not turning to false gods in the land on which others depend. 
but oh God, walk, walking closely with you, a better choice to be on the winning side. And I pray, oh God, for anyone here who's not at peace with you, maybe that one by your grace would spend time with us even before leaving tonight so we could chat about it. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the victory you give us in being allied to you by faith. This we pray in your precious name, in Jesus' name, amen.